to the Gibson Girl Review, the book review podcast that rescues antique novels from the doom of mere decor and puts them back where they rightfully belong, in your to-be-read pile. Join us every week as we rediscover forgotten stories from the Gilded Age and Progressive Era and uncover just how entertaining and relevant they still are more than a century later. everybody to another exciting action-packed episode of the Gibson Girl Review. I'm Amy Drown. You all know me. Hello, hello. And today I have another guest reviewer joining me on the show. So everybody put your hands together and help me welcome our new friend of the podcast, Erin Anfinson Pirani. So Erin and I connected online because Erin was interested in being a reader on the show. And as we started talking about the book she might read, she was so excited to read it that she read the whole book and wanted to be on the show to review it. So here she is, which is awesome. Yeah, I finished the book in three days and I said to myself, I want more of it. Well, we are super excited to have you here. I am happy to be here. But first, let's tell everybody who you are and what you do. All right. Because we all need to know that. Absolutely. So Erin is a historical fiction writer. She writes about the Edwardian and Progressive Eras, early 20th century, depending on what side of the Atlantic you're writing about. Mm -hmm. And she particularly writes about independent, sassy women who are not afraid of a little adventure. Sounds like a Gibson girl to me. Oh, she is. I didn't know (laughs) I was writing them until I heard the podcast and I said, wow, that sounds strangely familiar. Exactly. So you've been publishing since... 2017? Yes, that's correct. Okay. It's been an ongoing thing since 2000... Oh, gosh. Nine. Okay. Yeah, because I started writing when my husband and I were dating. And, of course, money and life got in the way, jobs and children. So, yeah, it just I didn't make my dream come true until 2017. And that's really when things took off. Well, that's awesome. So... As a fan of the podcast, do you have a favorite episode or book that we have talked about on the show so far? All of them. <laughs> actually, <laughs> it is all of them. I couldn't find a single one that I didn't like, actually. That's a great answer. <laughs> but if I had to pick one, I guess it was Earthquake of the Soul. Ah, Travers. Yes. <laughs> Travers, yes. I have that on my 2B red yes. pile, actually. Okay, Katya will be cheering when she hears that because she loves yes. that book. And it's actually a really good comparison to the story that we are here to talk about today. Yes, I think maybe that's why I liked it so much. (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot to compare between these two books. So let's dive into today's all-new old book review. Let's. I'm excited. Let's tell everybody what book we are here talking about today. 
It's Her Prairie Night by B.M. Bauer. First publication was in 1907. Yay! Yes. The progressive era! <laughs> but apparently it was first printed in serial form over a decade earlier. Oh gosh, so what is that, 18... 18- 97? Yeah. This was a weird thing about this book. Yeah. We were completely 100% going off of the 1907 date because every source we found said this book was published in 1907, right? Mm Mm-hmm. But after reading the book and starting to research the original reviews and author information, which is all incredibly fascinating in this particular case, I started seeing that the story had actually been out and advertised back in the 1890s. Oh. So I don't know what's going on. Most of the reviews I found dated to 1904, so a little bit earlier. But for whatever reason, 1907 is listed as the official publication date. So suffice it to say, Her Prairie Night is from the turn of the century. Mm-hmm. And there are definitely things about this book that will kind of span both the Gilded Age and the Progressive Era. There is so much to unpack about this story. You bet. But the first thing we need to do is to tell all of you what this book is about. In a nutshell, Prairie Night is the story about Beatrice Lancel, an Eastern Society girl. She gives up her traditional summer, and I'm assuming Newport. So they go to Montana. Of course, being the era, she cannot travel alone, so of course she has a whole host of chaperones with her, including the English nobleman who wants to marry her. But Trix isn't sure how she feels about him, and her feelings become even more muddled when she meets her brother's cowboy neighbor. (laughs) Yes, this is a classic Harlequin love-inspired Hallmark Channel movie type story. And I think that's what drew me more into the book. Exactly. Because it's even more like a Hallmark movie. Oh, it's totally. Totally. It is 100% tropey. Love it. And it's supposed to be. Love it. And that's one of the reasons we're talking about it here this summer is because, as they would have said back in the turn of the century, this is a hot weather read. For sure. For sure. So, I bet one of the reasons you picked this book for the podcast, Amy, is because it takes place in Montana, right? Actually, yeah. (laughs) Yay! Plus, I found a copy of Her Prairie Night at a local flea market. Fun! So, it was once again a book in my library that I hadn't yet read, which is perfect podcast material. Mm Mm-hmm. But when you and I first talked about you being on the podcast, what made you want to read and review this particular book? So, the title itself just drew me in, and the word night... Ooh, this is going to be a romance, so I just instantly had to read it. So I knew right then and there I was going to love it. So with this book, it is set in Montana in the early 1900s, but once I actually started reading the book, my initial reaction was, this story feels kind of out of place in 1907. It feels more like an 1890s novel. Oh, I thought it was more modern than that. More like 1920. It's kind of funny that way. Yeah. And I think the reason I felt that is because Beatrice is such a classic Gibson girl archetype. Totally. She truly represents everything that we talked about all last season in our Gibson Girl history segments. Totally. And of course, the heyday of the Gibson Girl was the 1890s. That was her decade. So while I did enjoy the story, I could never shake this kind of niggling fact that the publication year maybe wasn't right. And of course, as we discovered after the fact, it wasn't. You know, the story had been out a little bit before 1907. 
So anyway, that was my initial reaction to the book was this immediate Gibson girl connection. What about you, Erin? What was your initial reaction to Her Prairie Night? So I'm a historical girl, as you know. Yes. And I went into thinking that the story would be slow because it's a Western. It's like, oh, I have not had good luck with Western. <laughs> I always thought as the cowboy is just reining in his rope and catching cattle. It's like, oh, this is going to be lame. So as I continue reading, I grew to really like Trixie. That's Beatrice. <laughs> yeah, Beatrice. Well, her brother called her Trixie. They call her Trix or Trixie in the book. Yeah, couple names. So if you hear us using those interchangeably in the podcast, it's just because that's what they do in the book. So Beatrice, Trix, Trixie. Aunt B. All the same person. All the same person. Yeah. <laughs> and like you said, she is the classic Gibson girl. She's outspoken. Very outspoken, actually. Oh, yeah. But also, I got some really strong Pride and Prejudice vibes hmm. while reading this book because there's an aloof heroine and then the creepy Mr. Collins character. And then also you have the reserved hero who reminds me of Darcy. And then, of course, the Mrs. Bennet, which is the mother. So that's totally thinking of it the entire time. That's really interesting because we kind of took this almost exact opposite ways. I definitely agree with you on the Mrs. Bennet type mother character. That is a definite connection between Beatrice's mother in the story and Mrs. Bennet in Pride and Prejudice. But when I was reading this book, I actually got really strong Shakespearean vibes. Hmm. This story very much reminded me of one of Shakespeare's pastoral comedies, like Much Ado About Nothing. I can see that. With yeah, I can totally see Beatrice that. and Benedict and the verbal sparring. You know, oh, there's yes. kind of a dislike at first sight yes. kind of vibe going on. So that's what this book made me think of. Very much so. I didn't actually think about it until you brought that up. Speaking of that... Did you have a favorite character? Oh, of course, Beatrice. Because, you know, she's sassy. Mm -hmm. She does not conform to the social pressures of her era. She holds her own, and I love that. Mm -hmm. But also, her fierce, adventurous nature. She loves a good adventure. I agree. I actually found Beatrice to be a really fascinating heroine. Like we said, she was very modern and strong and filled with this curiosity and energy. But she was also still very feminine, which again, very it just much. makes her this quintessential Gibson girl. And then Beatrice's mother really drove home the Pride and Prejudice feel for me. Yeah, like I said, I definitely agree with you on that. She had some strong Mrs. Bennett vibes. Yes. Especially the way that she was constantly like, you need to marry Sir Redmond and secure the family future. Yeah. And speaking of Sir Redmond, I did not care for him. He just seemed so interested in Beatrice for her looks. His persistence was just, ugh. Interesting. Just annoying for me. It's just, I felt like he was going to hold her back if she were to marry him. Really? Oh. See, I just got a completely different read on him, which is funny because the book is called Her Prairie Night, and you bring a nobleman from England to the prairie, and I kept thinking, this is going to go in one of two ways. You take a knight and adapt him to the prairie, or you take a prairie man and turn him into a knight. That's what I was thinking. So I was team Sir Redmond because hmm. I thought with his interest in the cattle business hmm. and developing land out there, I thought the story was actually going to go in that direction of him leaving the noble life for a life on the prairie. And then that's how Beatrice would fall in love with him. Oh, interesting. So I actually found Sir Redmond to be the most interesting character. He felt like the only one who was not tropey. That's true. 
I mean, he was clearly in pursuit of Beatrice, but I felt like he was at least trying Mm -hmm. to meet her on her terms, you know? Mm -hmm. I felt like he was trying to understand her, but I guess I just got this stiff upper lip British reserve vibe from him that was very typical. Mm -hmm. Every British person I know will swear to that stiff upper lip. So, of course, he didn't exhibit the same kind of Mm -hmm. passionate abandon. (laughs) That Beatrice shows. So I can see where he looks kind of stuffy in comparison. That reserve. But even in the end, there is a scene where Beatrice acknowledges the fact that Sir Redmond's feelings for her are really strong. Oh, yes. The quote that she says, you know, like, his is a love that would demand everything in return. And I don't know if I can give that. Yeah. All this together, I just found him the most interesting because, like I said, he was the one who was playing against the expected type of this genre. Right. And again, like, again, Mr. Collins. Mr. Collins wasn't a bad guy. He just felt very fondly of Elizabeth, but she Mm -hmm. didn't feel the same way for him. See, and I didn't get Mr. Collins vibes from him. I got Colonel Fitzwilliam vibes. (gasps) Oh, yeah, I can see that. Those are the vibes that I got from Sir Redmond. Okay. Well, what about Little Dorman Hayes? Oh, I hated that kid. (laughs) Really? Yes. I cannot stand the little kids who get thrown into books with their cutesy dialogue and it's always written like they talk with affected lisp or speech or whatever. I mean, he was just a total plot device, total character. Oh, yeah. Totally annoying. I can see how you'd feel that way. But again, I kind of felt like him really endearing. I saw him as a little Cupid. I saw him more as like a little imp. Oh, yeah, that too, because he did get into a whole host of troubles. Yes. Coming to the cowboy next door. Yes. Keith Cameron, the cowboy next door. The very strong silent type. His down-to-earth personality, observing Beatrice from afar. He allowed her to make her own decisions about him, and which I love. He didn't really badger her into liking him. He just kind of kept calling her his object of desire. And I thought, oh, that's so cute. Really? Oh, I just swooned. Got the swoonies. You know what I mean? I don't know what you mean with this character because I didn't get that vibe from him at all. (laughs) Oh, I did. I love the blooming romance between Keith and Trix. It's so sweet, but the entire time I kept shouting in my head, just make a move. Come on, Trixie. Come on, just do it. This just cracks me up how differently we read these characters because... I felt like he was a total player. Like, if we follow your Pride and Prejudice analogy, he was the Mr. Wickham character for me. He just had this kind of passive-aggressive vibe. Okay. More than once in the book, he's called this masterful man, implying he's sly. Mm. It came across to me like he was the more controlling and manipulative one than Sir Redmond was. Mm -hmm. That could also be because, despite the fact that I do live in Montana... And I'm a huge fan of Louis L'Amour. And I've read Westerns my entire life. Hmm. I have never gone for the cowboy infringed chaps stereotype. So (laughs) Keith had no attraction for me on that score whatsoever. Yeah. Like ex-boyfriends would show up in cowboy boots. I'm like, you need to change before I will be seen in public with you because (laughs) no. Not doing it. Not doing the cowboy boots. Oh my gosh. I'm not a super big fan of tropey kind of fiction like this. I gravitate more towards the books that defy the expected tropes and genres. I can understand. All of that said, Keith does play his part in the story very well. Yes. But Beatrice is clearly the star of the story. And all of these men are just secondary players. 
which again is exactly how Dana Gibson drew the girls in all of his cartoons. And I, initially I thought Beatrice would just trip and not trip and fall on her face, but like, when she's trying to get on the horse, I thought she'd just like, oh my God, I can't get up. I need help. No, it's more like, don't help me. Don't help me. I got this. Exactly. I can take care of this myself. Exactly. And that is such a classic Gibson girl experience. Yes. She is a feminine woman, but she is not helpless. She is not some weak, sheltered woman. I love it. She is described as headstrong, which I love. Mm -hmm. I agree that she is the classic Gibson girl, very down to her looks. Yeah. So the quote we chose for today's episode title is, Mere man must yield or run. Which is something that Keith says about Beatrice during a scene late in the book when they're both being held up by an outlaw, and yet somehow, even then, Beatrice manages to coax this outlaw into complying with what she wants him to do, right? She is in the driver's seat. That was my favorite scene in the whole book, actually. I think that was probably my favorite. That and one other one, where she gets on the horse, and the horse just breaks, or breaks loose, and she loses her camera in the process, I believe. It smashed, and I was like, oh, the camera! The camera angle was a really fun touch, yeah. Yeah. But this is all exactly what makes her, again, we can't say this enough, what just makes her such a perfect Gibson girl heroine. Yes. She is totally in control of every scene and every situation, and the men around her can do nothing but succumb or run away. Or run away. I hear Monty Python in my head whenever I do that. Run away! Run away! Run away! (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so Beatrice gets her way. Yes. And she has no problem holding men off when she wants to, and letting them in when she wants to. She is in the driver's seat. Absolutely. She gets what she wants, even if what she wants is to go help put out a wildfire. Oh, yes. That was interesting. And that is the scene that we're going to share with all of you today. We are pleased to welcome back Laura English. She previously did a reading for us back in episode one from America's Daughter, and we are so excited to have her back today. Yay! This scene today is a great example of not only Beatrice's determination to not miss out on anything, but also it just shows she wants new experiences, even if it's the most bizarre, unusual new experience you could imagine. So in this scene, there is a brush fire that has been spotted near Beatrice's brother's ranch. And as all of the men race off to go battle it, Beatrice refuses to be left behind. She grabs a hat and gloves, and she mounts up right alongside Sir Redmond and the cowboys, And she goes out with them to the fire. And it's unlike anything she's ever seen or experienced before. The dull red glow brightened to orange. Then, resting at last a long hill, they came to the top. And Beatrice caught her breath at what lay below. A jagged line of leaping flame cut clean through the dark of the coulee. The smoke piled rosily above and before, and the sullen roar of it clutched the senses, challenging, sinister. Creeping stealthily, relentlessly, here a thin gash of yellow hugging close to the earth, there a bold, bright wall of fire. It swept the coulee from rim to rim. The wind is carrying it from us, Sir Redmond was saying in her ear. Are you afraid to stop here alone? I ought to go down and lend a hand. Beatrice drew a long gasp. 
Oh no, I'm not afraid. Go, there's Dick, down there. You're sure you won't mind? He hesitated, dreading to leave her. No, no, go on, they need you. Sir Redmond turned and rode down the ridge toward the flames. His straight figure was silhouetted sharply against the glow. Beatrice slipped off her horse and sat down upon a rock, dead to everything but the fiendish beauty of the scene spread out below her. Millions of sparks danced in and out among the smoke wreaths which curled upward, now black, now red, now a dainty rose. Off to the left, a coyote yapped shrilly, ending with his mournful howl. Beatrice shivered from sheer ecstasy. This was a world she had never before seen. A world of hot, smoke-sodden wind, of dead black shadows and flame-bright light, of roar and hoarse bellowing and sharp crackles, of calm, star-sprinkled sky above, and in the distance, the uncanny howling of a coyote. This scene comes at about the halfway point of the story, and when I first read it, I immediately felt like it was an allegory of Beatrice herself, because she is enamored with this idea of adventure, yet she's admiring it from a safe distance. And as this scene goes on and the fire gets closer, we see her shifting from this reaction of awe and ecstasy, as she says, to being afraid, but yet also determined to act in spite of her fear. Yes. So this really felt like a critical moment in her development as a character because you kind of see this idealistic, I'm having an adventure out west bubble <laughs> pop. And yes, it is also the scene in which her feelings begin to change toward that cowboy next door. So it's a pivotal scene for the romance part of the story, too. I agree. There were a few scenes where Trix displayed her character, but the wildfire in particular displayed her true colors. They shine through, yeah. like the fire. Yes, and another thing I really appreciated about the scene was the factualness of it. Because I can tell you, firsthand experience even now, this is a perfect description of a Montana wildfire. Oh dear. We laugh that there are five seasons in Montana. You have spring, summer, fall, winter, and fire season. Oh my goodness. Bauer's descriptions of the land and the scenery are also very accurate. Although I personally hated... <laughs> Great Falls when I lived there, and that's the side of the mountains that this story takes place on. Okay. But all of the original reviews that I found praised this book and praised Bauer for accurate representations of cowboy and Western life. So overall, I just felt like this scene was such a great example, not only of Beatrice as a character, but also Bauer as an author and how she knows her subject matter. And yes, I did say her, because the biggest surprise of her prairie night for me was discovering that B.M. Bauer was a woman. And now that you told me that, I love this book even more. Her real name was Bertha Muzzy. She was born in Minnesota, so Ooh! there's another connection for you there, Erin. Yeah, now I love it even more. And moved to a homestead near Great Falls, Montana, or as I call it, not-so-Great Falls. <laughs> she eloped with her first husband in 1890, and they did live in Great Falls and later down in Big Sandy, Montana. They had three kids. And they also took in a boarder named Bill Sinclair, who was nine years younger than Bertha. Oh. And she tutored him in exchange for him giving her tips about cow punching and ranch life. 
to enhance the authenticity of the stories that she was beginning to write. It definitely paid off. Her writing turned out to be an escape from what proved to be an unhappy marriage, and she was looking for a means to gain some financial independence so she could eventually divorce Clayton Bauer. Oh, no. Her first book, Chip of the Flying You, was a huge success and made her famous, and she wrote several novels set at this Flying You ranch. Oh. And ultimately, they allowed her to divorce her husband in 1905, and just a couple months later, she turned around and married Sinclair. Ooh. Their marriage also did not last. They divorced in 1911. Oh, no. And Bertha moved to California, where she met and married husband number three in 1920. And they remained together until their deaths. Oh, that's so romantic. He died in 1939, and she died in 1940. So all of this to say, she published her stories under the name B.M. Bauer to disguise the fact that she was a woman, because women weren't supposed to write westerns. Oh, of course not. And... There is one source that says once it got out that B.M. Bauer was a woman, her sales dropped. Well, that's not good. But this is something typical. We've seen in a lot of Gilded Age, 19th century, and even early 20th century stories of women having to write under the guise of a man in order to get published. Since the beginning of time. Yeah, exactly. And she wrote 57 Holy cow. Western novels in all and sold over 2 million copies of her books. And several of them actually were adapted for film. And while she was living in Southern California with husband number three, she was even involved in helping to write the screenplays oh. for some of these books, as well as other screenplays for other Westerns. And she became friends with very early famous Western movie actors like cool. Tom Mix and Gary Cooper. <gasps> oh! So yeah, so she had a lot of firsthand experience in Montana life and in ranch life that she could bring into these books, which I think really comes across. And the reviews that I found not only talked about B.M. Bauer and his writing. <laughs> Most of them say exactly what we've said already here on the show, that she was not some great writer. You know, this book does not stand a good comparison to Bret Hart or Zane Grey. Mm -hmm. But for what she was writing, they're good. And of course, once you see it in hindsight that this is a woman writing Western, then yeah, of course, it makes so much more sense. Perfect. Why she would focus more on the romance side of yes. the story than on the cowboy side of the story. Well, that's what readers loved back then. They loved that romance and adventure. So it's just this fascinating intrigue behind this thing. Yes. But the reviews did praise her, him, as they thought, for the way that her stories blended this classic Western with the emerging new Western landscape as a place of both traditions and technology, such as ranches being fenced in with barbed wire. And you mentioned the camera earlier. Beatrice is out taking pictures with her Kodak. Mm -hmm. It's the traditional Wild West meeting the technology of the 20th century. I loved it. Yeah. And she sounds like a Gibson girl herself with that adventure spirit. I think so. Yeah. She was determined to chart her own destiny. Absolutely. You can see how she was herself an independent woman who craved adventure. Absolutely. Obviously, we did like a lot of things about this book, tropes and everything aside. Were there any challenges for you about her Prairie Night? Yes, the wording. It was just monotonous and got confusing in the beginning. <laughs> I had to go back. Yeah, I definitely agree. The whole opening scene leaves a lot to be desired in terms of structure. I agree. It doesn't very well establish the setting and some of the details about who's who. You know, it just jumps right in with names and conversation and dialogue, which was very typical at this time, but it doesn't get cleared up. Yes. However, ultimately, it didn't really make any difference because, again, this story was so tropey that you're really only supposed to figure out who two or three characters are. 
and the rest are just background noise. So it was a big challenge to get over at first, but ultimately it doesn't affect the plot in any way. You're just like, oh, there's just other people around. Yep. Just to move the story forward. And I was a little bit disappointed towards the end. I wanted more closure. The story ended too abruptly for my taste. I just feel like there should have been more closure between the characters instead of boom, ending. I agree. The ending was a bit too abrupt for my taste too. Plus Trixie, she was an educated woman. Bauer never really stated what was she proficient in. We do know that she can read, but I'd like to know more of her educational qualities other than the fact that she was very outspoken and flirtatious. That never bothered me because I guess I had just assumed her quote education and there's air quotes again that you guys can't see. <laughs> I just figured it was like typical Gilded Age socialite, mm -hmm. probably more manners and social customs with a smattering of modest athletics thrown in. Yeah. Horse riding. I never expected her to have any true academic credentials, so that part didn't bother me. Another thing that bothered me was the boy, Dorman Hayes. I was questioning the paternity of the boy the entire time. <laughs> I thought he was the son of Richard, Trix's brother. And then we later find out that it's not his son. It's like, okay, who does he belong to? Yeah, there is a whole vague storyline about dead relatives in England who were Dorman's parents. Hmm. I think his mother was Beatrice's sister, and the father was Sir Redmond's brother. Oh. It's weird. You think you're supposed to understand how all these people are connected, but ultimately, mm -hmm. again, didn't ultimately affect the overall story trope. That makes sense, I guess. Yeah, there were a couple of instances of some language mentioned. Hmm. Towards the middle of the story during the brush fire. I'm not going to say it because it might be offensive to some listeners. Yes. But it was common back in the day to say that sort of word. And it's insensitive now, yes. racially. But the raiders should be aware of that. Yes, and we've had to deal with that in books that we've reviewed on the show before, and I'm sure it will come up again. But as we always say, these kind of issues are not a reason to cancel these books or try to rewrite them as though such language and attitudes never existed because that kind of attitude just diminishes the experience of the people who were victims of those attitudes. I agree. So again, our focus is to keep reading and talking about these books because that's the only way that we can learn and do better. I agree. And that's a theme we are always talking about on this podcast, how even forgotten books like Her Prairie Night are still relevant and worth reading today. I agree. I agree. Along those lines, what kind of themes and relevance stood out to you, Erin? The whole idea of ranching and living off the land, that's very much alive today. Oh, yeah. And something that modern readers will definitely be able to relate to. Oh, yeah. Ranching and farming are definitely a huge part of Montana history and current day life. And also the entire Midwest and Northern Plains. So this book mm -hmm. is a great primary source account of what that ranching life was like 100 years ago. Mm -hmm. I also love this angle about how these small ranching outfits like Beatrice's brothers and like Keith's were being forced out of land and water rights by these large corporate conglomerates coming in and buying up everything. It was really interesting to see a historical perspective on all of that because those are all still very much hotly debated in Montana Ooh, today. That's interesting. Another historical fact that I gleaned here is the anti-European sentiment mm. of the late 19th century. And this is another very strong Gibson connection as Charles Dana Gibson and Life magazine were some of the biggest advocates against the trend of wealthy Americans selling their young daughters to aristocratic European families. Oh, my goodness. And Beatrice even comments at one point in the story saying that if she'd married Sir Redmond, everybody would think she was just chasing a title. 
she kind of makes it sound like it's her patriotic all-American duty to refuse a British bow, <laughs> you know? So this, again, was an actual historical situation that they all had to deal with in the 1890s and the early 1900s about keep American money and American wealth in America. Don't send American heiresses to Europe. Exactly. This was a really fun example of how that real life situation and real life political and socioeconomic problem in the Gilded Age can play out in an individual case. So that was really fun. Yes, yes. And I think that Beatrice just, again, that whole Gibson scenario where she wanted to make her own way. And I think modern readers will definitely relate to Trixie for longing for that freedom, adventure, and that independence. That theme is still entirely present today. Oh, yeah. That basic human desire for self-determination. Yeah. And longing for adventure. Exactly. And this was a huge issue in the decades after the Civil War for all classes of men and women. This is just a generation or two after emancipation. And so you have entire race of people who have been given the chance to have self-determination and how that argument then carried forward for women oh, yeah. wanting the choice for self-determination. Right. It's a fascinating time period, and you get glimpses of a lot of that kind of real-life stuff happening in this story, which makes it a really great historical and relevant read. Right. It was during a time where women were entirely dependent on their brothers or their husbands. Yeah, but then also after the Civil War, a lot of women lost that connection and that protection yep. because their fathers, brothers, husbands died in the war. Yep. They were left with no means yep. except what their own two hands could provide. Exactly. And that directly led into the woman question mm -hmm. and the growth of the women's rights movement that we see in the decades after the Civil War. Because if you want to say voters have to be property owners, well, what happens when the only property owner left is a woman? Yep. Then they couldn't vote. I mean, they couldn't vote yet. Exactly. So there's a lot of really interesting historical nuggets to glean from this oh, book. for sure. As well as a fun romance to enjoy. Yes. So overall, I did enjoy this book. Again, like I said, while it stayed very true to its course and plot as a lighthearted romance, which is exactly what it was supposed to be, mm -hmm. it was still a very breezy, interesting, entertaining story. It's also a very quick one. I mean, this whole story is like less than 200 pages. So... I definitely can recommend this book as a fun summertime read. I definitely saw it like a Harlequin. The story felt very modern. Yes, and as we always do with every episode, for those of you who want to read the books that we review here on the podcast, we always include a link mm -hmm. to where you can download a copy of this book for free to read for yourself. Because again, all the books we review on the show are in the public domain. And with that, it is now time to close the cover. On Her Prairie Night by B.M. Bauer. Special thanks to Laura English for another fantastic reading today. And to Erin Anfinson Pirani for being my guest reviewer today. Thank you, Amy. It was so much fun. Join us next time when we revisit the past and examine the present through the pages of another antique novel. And until then, you all know what to do. Keep reading like a Gibson girl. Thank you for listening to the Gibson Girl Review, a Curious Antiquarian production. For complete show notes, transcripts, download links, and more, please visit us at gibsongirlreview.com. 